just a brief review of um, the study last Thursday evening, and then uh, we will uh, begin treading through some some new ground. We began last uh, evening by talking about the uh, some foundational principles that uh, uh, we all needed to to know and understand, and I'll just quickly enunciate these. First of all, uh, women um, are not metaphysically subordinate to men. That is, as to essence or nature, they are not inferior to men. And uh, the passage that uh, we gave for that was Genesis 1, 26-28, that from the very beginning God created uh, man and woman alike in his image, in his likeness. We uh, stated, secondly, that women are not spiritually subordinate uh, to uh, men. That is, as to the grace of life, uh, they are not subordinate. Uh, we found in 1 Peter 3.7 that, in fact, uh, they are said to be heirs together of the grace of life. In Galatians 3.28, uh, we find that uh, there is neither male nor female in Christ. third point that uh, we drew uh, was that uh, women, however, are functionally subordinate to men. That is, they are subordinate in authority. And um, we considered uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 3 and 8 through 9. And that passage, the Apostle Paul uh, makes very clear that uh, there is a difference between function and essence because the Son is not inferior to the Father as to nature or essence, but the Son is uh, subordinate to the Father as to function, uh, and uh, that uh, as well is true of, of women according to that particular text. And so um, we find at that particular point that there is a functional distinction, and um, uh, that's based, according to verses 8 through 9, that's based upon the very order of creation itself that it's not some kind of cultural um, uh, issue at all, but rather it goes back uh, to the very foundations of creation and the way and the order in which God uh, created uh, man and woman. And I noted that uh, this functional distinction between uh, man and woman uh, exists in the home uh, we noted that wives are su to submit to their husbands and husbands are to love their wives. It exists in the church, according to 1 Timothy 2, 11-14, that women are not to teach or to exercise authority over men. And it exists in, in society at large. And um, we noted that in Isaiah 3.12 that God says that uh, one of the signs of judgment that would be upon Israel would be that women uh, would rule over them. And um, uh, we can uh, look more at the uh, uh, the home and the uh, society at large later. We're focusing our attention right now upon the role of women within the church. Um, 
The next point, major point that uh, I emphasized was that women, however, um, in spite of the functional distinction between men and women, uh, women are wonderfully gifted to serve in the Church of Jesus Christ. And uh, I probably should emphasize that at the beginning of the Bible study and close the Bible study by doing the same thing so that no one leaves uh, thinking uh, otherwise. Um, in spite of some of the difficult things that, uh, uh, and new, perhaps novel, uh, things that might be stated, I, I want to underscore this, that uh, throughout the ministry of Jesus, throughout the ministry of the apostles, there were gifted teacher, women teachers. There were gifted uh, um, uh, uh, servants ministering diagonally to Christ in every way and ministering to, uh, to Paul and the other apostles. There were those uh, of whom uh, Paul said they were uh, co-laborers, labored with Paul in the gospel, um, Euodia and Syntyche. Um, but uh, we uh, indicated that this uh, does not imply that they were, were teaching and preaching the Word of God, evangelizing men, but they could have a very effective ministry as appears to be consistent with the rest of Scripture with regard to uh, women and children, and yet the labors with Paul in the Gospel. Uh, widows were very uh, much involved in the ministry of the church uh, at that time, ministering to various needs uh, that uh, uh, that um, were present within the congregation that particularly women would be more gifted and more able to, to do than, than men. And then um, we also noted that... Uh, uh, not only were there prophetesses, as the, in the case of uh, the four daughters of Philip, uh, who uh, ministered uh, even uh, the direct revelation of God uh, at times within, uh, apparently within their father's house, but uh, not in a corporate worship service. But there were also women very gifted to teach children and other women in the church, according to Titus uh, chapter 2. And so, um, uh, women, I believe, uh, can be uh, gifted in teaching um, and uh, learning doctrine. Uh, they can be uh, very theologically astute, um, uh, can be avid readers uh, of uh, theological works and using all of that knowledge in, um, uh, in the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, they're not... Uh, they're not uh, 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 unable to use their gifts to, to minister within the church. Um, they are restricted according to some of the passages that we, will, we did look at last uh, Thursday as well as we'll continue to look at this uh, tonight. They are restricted in their use of these gifts when it comes to teaching or exercising authority over men. Now, those were foundational principles that were laid. Uh, uh, we began talking about principles related to the role of women in the church. And specifically, um, we looked at uh, in, in worship, the area of worship. And uh, I uh, introduced somewhat of a, uh, I think, a controversial uh, subject at that point making the, uh, uh, submitting to you, at least for your thinking uh, at this point, 
that uh, uh, I am still unable to uh, see a real distinction between formal and informal worship, and um, uh, that uh, rather it appears to, to me that the distinction is not uh, between those two categories, but rather between uh, public or corporate worship and private worship. And uh, those appear to be the more uh, uh, valid kinds of distinctions that are made between the times that the church gathers together. Uh, and um, that was significant not only because of uh, the point that uh, it, ha- it pertains to what we do on, say, a, an evening like tonight in our, in our worship, that, uh, uh, that the things that are elements of worship, if that, if that, if that is uh, true, that there is uh, not formal and informal worship types of distinctions, but corporate and private distinctions, then the things that we would do essentially on the Lord's Day would be uh, required uh, upon uh, other times that we gather together in worship. And um, the second point that came from that simply is that uh, that uh, therefore the role of women uh, on uh, on other times that we gather, for example, Thursday nights, would be similar uh, in uh, to the role that they would have on on the Lord's Day as well, if the worship is essentially the same. Now, um, just again to uh, uh, I, I mentioned the biblical, some biblical argumentation last uh, last uh, Thursday with regard to uh, why I, I drew that distinction. I mentioned um, uh, 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 some biblical passages, but I want to also just mention one other thing from the Confession of Faith with regard to this distinction that uh, that was drawn last time, and that's found in the Confession of Faith, chapter 21. And section six, and uh, notice the distinctions that the Confession of Faith makes here with regard to worship. It's given in, in uh, section five of chapter twenty-one uh, what those uh, parts, the ordinary uh, parts of religious religious worship, are. And then it comes to section six, and I'll read the entire section and then just make some comments. It says, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth as in private families daily and in secret each one by himself so more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken, when God by his word or providence calleth thereunto. Now the three kinds of worship settings are secret worship, private worship of families, and public assemblies. It makes no distinction, in my judgment, between the worship on the Lord's Day and worship when the church comes together other days. Um, 
that that same distinction I think is carried out in the in the uh, public uh, in the uh, the directory for public worship as well. Those that that particular distinction. Um, the concerns that uh, that we might share with regard to uh, that in some way setting up another Lord's Day, um, uh, we can perhaps in another setting uh, talk more fully about that. I don't think that because we worship, uh, have a worship service on another uh, evening, that that uh, makes that particular day uh, equal to the Lord's Day. Uh, there is something absolutely unique about the Lord's Day, um, and uh, we are to worship God uh, um, and set that day aside for private and public worship. There were other times in the course of Israel's history, other than the Sabbath, in which uh, uh, Holy convocations were called, in which people gathered to worship God, and uh, uh, I think that uh, the proof text, interesting, one of the proof texts that's used for the public worship of God at other times is the passage in in Acts chapter two. It's the last proof text, um, Acts chapter two, and uh, this is. Um, I'll read uh, through forty-seven. And they continued steadfastly in the doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Those would be, I think, the the uh, uh, main parts of of, of our worship uh, to God. Verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So that is uh, uh, particularly it's 2:42. That is the uh, uh, is the proof text for that particular uh, for that particular uh, uh, part of the confession of faith. The uh, uh, you remember just uh, to summarize Warfield B.B. Uh, B. Warfield makes no uh, makes no distinction between. Formal and informal. In fact, he supports that that particular view. That uh, when it talks about gathering for worship, it's the church meetings. It's the church meetings when it, whenever they gather together, and it's uh, uh, that uh, that I that I, that I would uh, uh, again have you consider, think uh, about, and uh, let's uh, uh, interact concerning. Um. Now, before we before we proceed to uh, our first text that we're going to uh, begin to uh, look at very closely, please understand that it is not my desire nor my intention uh, to so uh, propose that we structure our times of fellowship. Uh, that men and women cannot discourse uh, about uh, uh, subjects with one another. Uh, nothing that I have uh, stated 
should be interpreted to discourage or couples or families getting together for fellowship and discussing uh, uh, any issues that they desire together, provided it meets with the husband's approval. The wife is permitted to discuss and ask theological questions in the presence of her husband, and if an issue comes up that he would like to talk with her about at home, uh, she should cheerfully submit to that. On the other hand, uh, women should be able to, I believe, converse with one another uh, about biblical issues uh, without their husbands necessarily uh, uh, in their presence, uh, that they should be able to talk about various uh, subjects and that uh, we should uh, have teaching going on, the older women uh, teaching the younger women in the congregation. Uh, some of the younger women have particularly questions about uh, raising children, uh, disciplining, uh, issues rega- regarding uh, 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 submission to their husbands, these kinds of things that uh, those, those godly uh, and older women in the church, uh, I think, should be, uh, according to Titus chapter 2, be using their gifts to train and to teach uh, women. Uh, and that's, I think, uh, a very important uh, office that they, uh, or, or uh, position that they hold with regard to teaching. So I would just emphasize that in spite of uh, any concerns that uh, that there might be uh, I think that you know my concern and I and I hope that I have rightly understood what Paul's concern was and we'll be looking at these uh, a little more closely this evening that his concern was that all things be done decently in order not only within the context of the worship but also outside the context of worship with regard to, to uh, this whole issue of authority, submission, uh, rule, and all of those kinds of uh, areas. And, um, and uh, that, I believe, was what he was concerned to protect. Now, I, I would uh, uh, like for us to turn to 1 Corinthians 14 at this time. And let's look at uh, this passage uh, in in its context a little more closely. This, uh, this whole section, uh, beginning with chapter 11 and running through uh, chapter 14, deals with, with uh, abuses uh, within the worship service. And as I alluded to uh, last time, uh, you have, and we'll look at this passage uh, in 1 Corinthians 11 with regard to head coverings. Uh, perhaps, uh, uh, I don't know if we'll have time to, uh, to get into it this evening, but uh, if not, the next uh, Thursday uh, or uh, 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 thereafter, depending on how long it takes for our discussion related to these other issues that we uh, said we'd be uh, talking about. But, um, but we will get to that. But that deals with specifically women in, in the uh, whole area of head coverings. Uh, the latter part of, of uh, 1 Corinthians 11 deals with uh, uh, the issue of men in particular and their abuse of the Lord's Supper, um, becoming uh, gluttons and drunkards, uh, uh, not coming uh, worthily to, to partake of the Lord's Supper, um, uh, mistreating uh, one another, uh, thinking that one was... Uh, uh, was more important than the other. The poor brethren uh, being left out in the time of the love feast, uh, not having anything to eat, while those who are rich were partaking. 
So those were the kinds of issues that were being dealt with in, at the, in the latter part of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 then begins to, to get into the whole issue of the abuse of, uh, uh, of uh, spiritual gifts and um, uh, how uh, those gifts that God uh, has given to the church are to be used uh, by his people. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, the, the emphasis is, is upon uh, a prophecy in tongues and um, the uh, appropriate uh, use of both of those uh, particular gifts. Uh, sandwiched in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 is really the key that uh, there needs to be love uh, exercised within the body uh, in order for there to be the right use of any gift. And apart from, apart from uh, that particular fruit of the Spirit, uh, he says uh, in 1 Corinthians 13 that tongues is like, like um, uh, sounding brass or clanging cymbal and that prophecy and if you, if, if you understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and all faith so that you can remove mountains but don't have love, it's nothing. And he says, um, Paul says in verse 3, though I bestow all my goods upon the poor and, and even give my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So again, emphasizing the, the necessity of, of love and the exercise of our gifts, uh, they, I believe, legitimately uh, had uh, gifts from God, these, these particular gifts. I don't think that that was the issue, whether they had them or not. The issue was that they were not serving one another with them. And uh, that was what Paul wanted to correct. But in correcting not only the use of love, he sets up, he sees the need to, for some order. Uh, things were just not orderly. Uh, people were doing things very disorderly. There's much confusion in the use of their gifts. Uh, and so, uh, again, he directs uh, some, uh, um, some counsel uh, to them. And it's not simply pious advice again. These are the words of God uh, to them as to how the service, uh, their, their public uh, services, their times that they gather together should be conducted. Now, he, at the very end of this chapter, addresses the, the issue of, of women and, and uh, their place, their role uh, in these times when the church gathers together for worship. Verse 34 is where I'll begin. Let your women keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Now, it's not my, my uh, aim or goal to, uh, to address the issue of tongues and 
and prophecy and those uh, those particular gifts this uh, this evening. We'll, uh, uh, Lord willing, have opportunity in the future to do that. But specifically, uh, my goal is to to address the issue of uh, of this passage and how it relates to the role of women uh, in the church. <clears throat> In verse 34, a pretty absolute statement, uh, so absolute that a commentator like Gordon Fee, uh, a modern uh, a commentator, uh, who is charismatic, who uh, I, uh, believes that women should be able to uh, uh, speak publicly, prophesy, things like that, uh, says at this particular point, he says... Uh, there's no way of getting around it. That's what it says. Women are to be silent in the worship service. The only problem is, he says, is this passage isn't authentic. That's the way he gets out of uh, that. He recognizes there's no way that he can explain away what it is saying at that particular point. It's an absolute statement about silence of women within the church. But uh, he uh, uh, falls back uh, upon the the a neo-orthodox or liberal uh, uh, view and says that simply this was not a part of the uh, original text, that this is not authentic. He has no nothing to base it upon uh, at all, but uh, simply to make that uh, statement. Now, um, I, I simply state that uh, to, to show the, the force that, uh, that even someone who supports women speaking in church cannot uh, truly evade the the uh, the force of this statement um, he says it twice in, in 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 two different ways that women are to keep silent that's one way he states it in that verse and secondly says they are not permitted to speak you see he he, he uh, uh, says it in a in a negative way. Uh, uh, they're to keep silent, and then states it very positively. And they're not permitted to speak, uh, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. Uh, then verse thirty-five. And if they want to learn something, uh, hopefully all of our women want to learn something in uh, in worship when they come together at times like this, that that is the goal, is to learn something. Uh, Paul says if they want to learn something, and I might add one other thing, uh, one other point, that uh, the same thing will come up in 1 Timothy. Uh, God uh, does expect women uh, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. That's not a commandment that's simply given to men. Uh, that is given to the whole church. And so uh, it is... Um, not only desirable, it is commanded uh, that uh, that we all grow in our knowledge of God. If they want to learn something, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Now, I just uh, want to emphasize a couple things here. Um, as we uh, talk about the role of women in church, women are not uh, to, according to, to this passage, and, and uh, uh, I, I understand it in this manner, that women are not to ask uh, theological questions or speak at all individually in the context of all church meetings. 
again, recognizing the uh, the uh, uh, fact that I have already stated, I don't see a distinction between the church meetings. If we gather as a church for worship, then uh, they should all be treated the same. But they're not to ask theological questions or speak at all individually in the context of church meetings. Now, I, I, I emphasize the theological because that's what's at issue here. Um, it's not saying that uh, women cannot uh, talk to a man, they cannot discourse with a man, uh, uh, they cannot uh, ask how their week went, uh, or you know those kind. You know, it's not talking your your job. Uh, uh, inquire as to something you've been praying about, and you know they've asked you. Know, you've heard public prayer, and you know inquire about all those things. That's not that's not what is at uh, issue here. The specific uh, thing that is being uh, addressed is that women are not to ask theological questions because uh, I think this is not to uh, implicate uh, uh, any uh, particular woman uh, or uh, all women necessarily, but uh, being a man and being in presbytery meetings, many questions are, uh, are asked in order to teach others. Uh, that's a, that happens all the time in presbytery meetings when you're examining somebody. Many of the questions are not asked of, of a candidate simply to find out what he knows or doesn't know, but to say something to everybody else or perhaps to teach this young man something further um, if he doesn't know, to be able to inquire. And so if that can happen to men, uh, there's no question in my mind that that can also happen with women, that women can ask questions in order not simply to obtain information, but also for the purpose of, of to a certain degree, teaching. And I think the, the Apostle Paul um, uh, not only says they're not to speak, but then clarifies it further that they're not to ask questions to make very clear what he's, what he's saying. Um, this passage, I believe, uh, is set again within the context of church meetings. Um, but I do believe that it speaks even more broadly uh, than to the worship service itself concerning that particular question or that issue of asking questions, theological questions. And the reason I think that is because if, if the Apostle Paul were simply concerned with them not asking questions in the worship service, but allowing uh, them to be able to ask questions uh, uh, after the worship service to the minister, to the, to the elders or something like that, he would have said, and if they want to learn something, let them ask the pastor after the service is over. Let them ask their elders after the service is over. But that is not what he says. Paul says very specifically, let them ask their husbands. In fact, not uh, he says let them ask their own husbands. They're not even to ask, uh, not only are they not to go to the elders or the pastors immediately with their questions, they're not to ask other men. The, the word idios, their own Husbands is what is emphasized here. Uh, those are those are the ones to whom the questions are to be asked. And it's notice the location. It's not uh, after the worship service, but it's it's at home. It's in a private situation, which they can discourse about these theological issues. 
and very legitimate for the for the wife to want to learn and to grow in her knowledge. But uh, I think that uh, to uh, to uh, try to get around what Paul is saying is to evade the very clear teaching of what what is being uh, given in that particular context. Um, Matthew Henry states, uh, and I, I quote, they were not ordinarily, speaking of women, they were not ordinarily to teach, nor so much as to debate and ask questions in the church, but learn in silence there. And if difficulties occurred, quote, ask their own husbands at home. If it be her duty to ask her husband at home, Henry said, Matthew Henry says, it is this is this is I like what he emphasizes at this point. He says, if it be her duty to ask her husband at home, it is his concern and duty to endeavor at least to be able to answer her inquiries. There's equal responsibility, therefore, upon the husbands to to be knowledgeable of God's word, to grow in their knowledge so that they can be a discipler of their wives. Um, A.R. Fawcett in the uh, commentary said, Jameson Fawcett in Brown writes, <laughs> If you want information, ask not in public, but at home. Ask not other men, but your own particular husbands. Paul does not prohibit women from such activities because and this is uh, this this becomes sometimes an argument. The reason that Paul was forbidding women from asking questions is that oftentimes we hear they were being disruptive, they were being loud in the worship services and that kind of thing. He doesn't say um, uh, if they want to w- learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home for it is. Uh, for their being disrespectful or their being uh, uh, disruptive, they're being loud, those kinds of things. He says very clearly, for it is shameful for women to speak uh, in church. It's shameful. Um, this particular word, uh, uh, ice cross, is the uh, actual word in Greek. Ice cross uh, means... Uh, it means... Uh, uh, but it's translated as shameful, and it's used four times in the New Testament. A very interesting usage of it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 11, 6 is where this word shameful is used. There we read, For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. The word shameful there is the same word. See, the emphasis here on the word shameful is this violates God's uh, created order in 11.6. The reason that women are to be covered in in worship is because God uh, is, is speaking to the whole issue of authority. And he specifies that in verses 8 through 9, that women uh, were created after men, that woman was derived from man, and therefore she is to be 
uh, covered in worship. And um, uh, in verse 6, it says that if she's unwilling to wear the head covering, uh, then uh, let her be shorn, let her cut her hair uh, short. Now, he goes on to say it's, it's a shame uh, for a woman to have short hair also later on. But if they're unwilling to wear a head covering, let them cut their hair short, shorn, or be shaved with a razor. Because that would be a total disgrace. Uh, and, uh, and so he's emphasizing again, this is not simply something cultural. But to have short hair or to be uncovered is an issue of, of God's uh, whole created order. And the same word is used with regard to a woman uh, who would uh, uh, ask someone other than her husband a theological question. And at home, he says, it is shameful for women to speak in church. And also to uh, implied in that is certainly uh, in the same verse, the asking of these theological questions. Um, now, we're, we're going to put the husbands on the hot seat at this time. And uh, we've, uh, we've been uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, dwelling upon, upon the wives, but uh, let's, let's really seriously consider this now. Some of the implications. If a wife comes to her husband and her husband is unable to answer her questions, what is his responsibility? His responsibility before God is to find out the answers and to teach his wife so that she can know and so that she can learn. And I would even say that uh, there's, there's certainly nothing wrong if a wife wants to ask a particular question for her, uh, for uh, the wife and the husband to come alongside. And so, in fact, some questions and some issues may really require that they both be present to be able to talk to the, the elder, the pastor. But if he's unwilling, if he's unwilling to to uh, uh, to go uh, uh, and find out the answers. Maybe he's too proud to do so. And he's unwilling to, uh, to do that. That's an act of rebellion against God. Because God says that, that uh, uh, the, the wife is to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ as, as the husband is. And that the husband is to live with his wife in an understanding way, recognizing that she's a weaker vessel and that she's an, an heir to the grace of life along with himself. And that if he doesn't do that, that his prayers will be hindered. So God takes, I think, this whole matter very seriously. That we not, that we not uh, uh, if wives are obedient and submissive and, and follow through, that husbands are required then to, as well, 
uh, do everything within their power to train, to teach their wives by going to the scriptures, by pulling out uh, 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 commentaries, whatever, going to the the teachers in the church uh, to obtain help. Now, let's uh, let's let's talk about another issue, but closely related. We just talked about a husband who would persist in sin and not teaching and training his wife. What's the wife's responsibility if if her husband does not do so? Is she simply to say, okay, I guess that's the way it is. I, I submit to you that her responsibility after going to her husband and not simply once, not nagging him, but respectfully going to him and saying, you have not you know, uh, uh, tried to deal with this particular issue, uh, you've refused to get help or, or anything like that, I submit to you that after she's done that, and, and uh, you know, more than once, that her responsibility is to go to, the, to an elder. And to, uh, because it's sin. That's sin on the husband's part. And uh, to carry out, at that point, Matthew 18. I don't think it should be brought to, uh, to, to all of the elders at that point. I believe that one elder should be gone to and that he would become a second witness trying to keep this particular situation as narrow as possible. And that, uh, uh, therefore, uh, uh, he would come and uh, try to, uh, uh, to, to work with the uh, husband uh, and uh, to help him to realize that it is indeed sin that he needs to repent of. See, if, if it, indeed it isn't pride in this, in this husband's uh, life that keeps him from wanting to do so. Um, and... Uh, and I could see that particular situation again if he's recalcitrant and he refuses to to repent. I could see that leading to you know church discipline because there's nothing, dear ones, uh, more important that's been entrusted to us than our wives. And if we don't love them enough to train and to teach them the very truths of God's Word, then we need to be shaken. We need to be disciplined. Um, and so I think that that's a, that's a, uh, a little scenario. Now, let's, let's just move a little bit further. Say it's not that particular issue of sin, but say there's another issue of sin. You know, I mean, we could come up with all kinds of things. Let's just, let's just say... Let's use the 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 um, some of the grossest kinds of sins to begin with, just to illustrate the point. Incest um, is a wife responsible after going to her husband and dealing with that situation. Um, is she required to go uh, to the el- to an elder of the church to bring that uh, before uh, an elder? I submit that she is. What about uh, unfaithfulness? Adultery, because she can't go against her husband if her husband tells her not to do it, not to go to the elders of the church to keep it a secret. Is she required to listen to her husband 
she required to go to, the, to an elder of the church. I submit to you, she must go to, to an elder of the church with regard to a situation like that. Um, what about um, uh, profane and abusive speech? What about uh, if you were watching uh, stag films? What, uh, what if uh, uh, he was physically abusing her or the children? What if he refuses to lead the family in worship? Does she have responsibility to listen to her husband who tells her, you must respect my authority, I don't want you to do that, or is she responsible to follow through with Matthew 18? I submit to you that uh, she's responsible to go to an elder. Now, I don't believe that she should go secretly to an elder of the church. I believe she should, she should uh, respect the integrity of the family and the office that he holds in the family that she should tell him, I am required to go to an elder of the church to deal with this. I want you to come with me. But if you won't come with me, I'm required to go by myself. So I think that is how God would, so that we don't have wives sneaking around, uh, you know, uh, in, 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 in ways uh, with regard to their husbands, or giving husbands that impression. I really think things like that should be dealt with honestly and up, uh, up front, uh, in an upfront manner. Um, so, um, such cases as these that we've mentioned, and you could probably come up with a, a number of other kinds of sins yourself that could occur within a family. But that is, I believe, how those kinds of situations should be resolved. Now, um, <clears throat> let's, uh, I'm going to leave, uh, at uh, Corinthians chapter 14, and, uh, let's, at least for the next few minutes, we've got a few more minutes, I want to use all the time that we have, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and let's look at, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, um, see how far we get into that this, uh, this evening. This is another one of those critical passages that deals with uh, the role of men and women in the church. Okay, I'll read uh, verses 8 through 15. Therefore I desire that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women, professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. In the public assembly, again, I think that's the 
that's the focal point here in the public assembly of the of, of the saints. Um, to summarize, women are not to pray uh, individually. They're not to uh, they're not to teach uh, men or rule over men, but rather they are to dress modest modestly, and they are to learn in silence. On the other hand, men are given the responsibility of praying, and that may uh, as well uh, imply uh, that men are given the responsibility of leading the worship service. Um, usually, you know, uh, services are invoked uh, by opening with prayer, and so that uh, uh, the praying may stand for just the leading of the worship service. Men are given the responsibility of praying, teaching, and ruling uh, in the church. You find basically what I've said with regard to the role of men and women uh, in uh, verses 8 through uh, 12. Now, uh, note that women uh, are not only forbidden from teaching and exercising authority over men, but are also given explicit command as to how they are to learn. They're not only told you can't you cannot proactively teach and rule over men but they're also told how they are to learn implied there women are to learn again they are to learn but notice how they are to learn let a woman learn in silence doesn't say let a woman learn by by asking questions of the elders and of other men. Let her learn in silence. And with all submission, submission to men, but particularly submission to her own husband. Because, again, I, I at this point I'm convinced to short-circuit that process and to go to another man before going to your husband is to show a lack of submission for your own husband. God does not want women to be ignorant of divine truth. He simply ordains that they learn in silence with regard to theological uh, truths. Now, women, moving beyond that particular subject, I, I do want to touch on this as well since it is brought up in the text. Women are given specific directions with regard to dress and conduct. They are to dress modestly, the scripture says. Now, what I'm about to, uh, I'll just read this for you. This actually comes from uh, the, the, the uh, courtship book um, on, uh, on the issue of modesty. But uh, let me read for you uh, just this uh, uh, section. And um, I think that this, in my judgment, uh, defines biblical modesty uh, with regard to dress. And women are specifically addressed here with, with, with regard to this. But I think that uh, the same thing applies to, to men with regard to, to modesty of dress as well. Um, uh, they're not specifically addressed, but I want to make that application. Biblical modesty would require that fashions should not be worn that either expose any parts of the body 
that should be covered or draw attention to parts of the body that should be covered. The tight-fitting fashions worn by many today are as contrary to biblical modesty as those fashions which actually expose the nakedness of some part of the body. Christian women, and I would include children and men also, should strive to dress in such a way that the eyes of others are not distracted from the face, eye contact. The primary issue with biblical modesty is that one's clothing should not be worn so as to draw attention to the body, but rather worn so as to draw attention to the hidden person of the heart. According to First or First Peter chapter three, that's what we should be. That's why we should be dressing the way that we should be dressing is to draw attention to the hidden person within. And in First Peter chapter three, two, as it says there, a uh, a quiet and gentle spirit. That's what that's what your clothing. Uh, dear ladies, should be uh, focusing attention on, not upon various parts of the body. He says, uh, but let it... Let me just back up a minute. Do not let your beauty be that outward adorning uh, of arranging the hair, of wearing gold, or of putting on a fine apparel. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So I think, now you know, with regard to the particular fashion that is worn, uh, I, I have you know, no necessary, no biblical um, uh, standard to give to you whether you wear, uh, you dress up a little bit or you dress down a little bit when you come to worship. But the issue is one of biblical modesty, being clean uh, when you come, uh, and uh, that, I think, meets those qualifications. If you are dressing in such a way as to um, uh, draw the attention of others to yourself, you have all this gold and silver on your hands and in your ears and, and, and uh, everywhere, I mean, around your neck, and and that's what people notice about you, then that's not dressing with regard to biblical modesty, whether you're a man or a woman. Um, if you are dressing in such a way that uh, you wear a low-cut dress, and uh, uh, when you stoop over, uh, parts of, that, uh, of your body are revealed, then that's not dressing with biblical modesty. If you sit down and your dresses come up uh, your your legs to such an extent that they reveal uh, parts of the body that should be covered, then you're not dressing with biblical modesty. You should always dress in such a way that whether you're stooping over, whether you're sitting down, that that those parts of your body are covered. Attention isn't drawn to 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 you in that way. Um, do not be naive, please, women. Uh, uh, men are responsible to watch their eyes and their thoughts 
their minds. They're responsible for that and they will stand before God on account of those things. But, they also can be essentially stimulated by what they see. Do not be naive in that area. And if, if a woman is, is married uh, to, another, uh, to another man, or even if she is single, but she becomes a stumbling block in that way, then, uh, then that woman is responsible as well as the man. They're both responsible because he could turn away. Uh, he doesn't have to focus on that particular thing. But uh, that's, uh, there's a responsibility that goes on both sides. So we're not picking on women at all. There's a responsibility of men in regard to uh, men's fashions. Uh, you know, we need to be careful that we're uh, men, you know, dressing in such a way that we don't draw attention to ourselves either. Um, uh, some, some, some clothing, uh, some uh, uh, pants and slacks are so tight fit, fitting. Uh, some, uh, uh, some shirts, uh, you know, are, are left unbuttoned, you know, uh, that type of thing. I mean, we need to be very careful uh, about those kinds of things as well. Uh, that uh, uh, that it's not s- simply something that pertains to to uh, women. Um, and just uh, uh, one more uh, one more point, and, and I will have finished what I wanted to say. I think in this passage, um, the the things that it speaks of women. Um, their role is with regard to uh, their dress in moderation. Uh, it says in verse 10, which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. tells how they're to learn. And then verse 15, I don't want to neglect that. Um, Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with self-control. And... Um, Though this is kind of a thorny uh, passage, uh, uh, various interpreters have looked at this in different way, different ways, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time. This is not a, a, a particularly uh, a Bible study at this point, anyway, on uh, the issue of birth control or or uh, bearing children. But I do want to simply emphasize that the role, one of the roles that God gives to women in this passage, says that she will be saved. And I think that the, the context of this verse is saying she'll be saved while she is doing that particular role that God has given to her to do, which is the bearing of children and raising of, fam- of a family. That that is, that is her particular role that God has given to her. And uh, that, uh, that is uh, her uh, place uh, within, within the church even uh, to, to bring her family to the Lord. And uh, and uh, one last point simply is that uh, the idea of not exercising authority over men, I think, also pertains to the whole issue of voting in, you know, within the church in meetings. That uh, that women, the reason that uh, we uh, uh, in this congregation and other congregations do not um, permit uh, women to vote is not because um, we do not believe that they are not heirs of uh, heirs of the grace of life. We do believe that, uh, but uh, uh, we do believe that uh, there are certain things not permitted to women 
that uh, do compromise the whole area of them teaching or exercising authority over men. And one of those areas is in the area of voting, uh, that in voting, uh, women do exercise authority over men. Uh, they can cancel out the vote of their husband, or uh, if uh, if you had, uh, um, theoretically, you had uh, 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 more women within a church uh, than you had men, and there was a particularly sensitive uh, issue uh, 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 that women particularly concerned about, and, and they uh, had a block together, uh, they would be exercising authority by virtue of their power to decide an issue uh, in that kind of a case. So um, this does as well pertain to, uh, this speaks to the whole area of uh, voting within uh, congregational meetings as well. Uh, the whole idea of voting does not uh, uh, comport well with all of the teaching throughout uh, the New Testament on the role of women and their needing to be in submission to, to men. Um, that, I think I'll stop right there. Uh, having looked at 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, uh, next time or that we are able to be, uh, look again at these issues, we, we will consider 1 Corinthians 11 and uh, talk about uh, the issue of head coverings and that type of uh, that subject. So, um, I'll uh, open, uh, open up the floor for questions uh, at this time and I'll, uh, as Reg mentioned, I'll uh, try to Try and state your question, if you can, uh, concisely. And uh, then I'll repeat the question in, into the microphone. And uh, then uh, uh, we'll begin trying to answer some of those questions. And again, you know, I, I, I want to emphasize at this point that uh, nothing's been done as far as church order. Uh, the elders have not made any rule. There's uh, even amongst ourselves some differences in, in, of, of uh, opinion at this point as to some of these issues. So there's really not um, not anything definitively uh, stated. And so we would uh, basically follow the same format that you have followed at this point in in uh, in the previous uh, times of uh, study. Questions? Yes, Reg? What about women voting in society what about women voting in society in general? Um, you notice that I didn't address that one, right? <laughs> very, very perceptive. Um, we're we're going to uh, um, so as to give uh, uh, so as to give uh, me a little bit more time. We're looking only at issues related to the church right now. <laughs> uh, I would I would uh, though I though I wouldn't uh, be. Uh, uh, at this point, I, I'm inclined, just based on what I've read, uh, to, to apply the same principle uh, with regard to society in general. But we haven't gotten to that particular uh, that particular issue. Yes, Mark. With regard to single women in the church, mm-hmm. um, so far as they don't have a husband to consult with on issues that would be voiding on, mm-hmm. do you agree that it would be the onus would be upon the elders to consult with single women on the church regarding issues that would be voiding on? Uh, yes, right. That um, in those kinds of situations, that uh, it would probably be uh, a single woman would come and meet with an elder and his, and his wife 
uh, in that context and talk with uh, them together about various issues. Uh, that would be, I think, the, the proper way to handle uh, that. Yes, Mark. One other question. Um, I've been taught uh, in the polling, uh, I think it's in, in Corinthians, and maybe in Romans, where Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned. I'm not sure about the, the Greek syntax, but it was the point was made that the woman's name preceded the man's name, and that was taught to me, was implied to me, that was because her ministry was more significant than her husband's at that point. Mm-hmm. Later on, I believe it's in Romans, for sure, are mentioned again, and at this time it's Aquila uh, and Priscilla. Um, you on the yeah, the question, I'll just repeat the question. Um, in uh, in uh, the New Testament, with regard to Aquila and Priscilla, the um, fact that Priscilla sometimes uh, precedes uh, Aquila when the, when the names are given in the text, does that imply that her ministry, uh, that she had a, uh, um, a different ministry, a uh, more gifted ministry of some nature than, than her husband? Um, yeah, I've, I've heard that uh, stated, uh, Mark, that, uh, that that's the case. Uh, in Acts 18, where um, they uh, together approach uh, Apollos, uh, uh, Aquila's name precedes uh, Priscilla's, you know, but I think in other places you're right that her name does precede his. In Acts 18, uh, verse 26, uh, speaking of uh, uh, Apollos' ministry, so he, that is Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. The point that I, I made um, concerning this uh, particular verse uh, last uh, Thursday was that that um, uh, I didn't focus so much upon the order of the name uh, at, at that point, but uh, rather upon the fact that that they came together, point one, and that she, it says, they explained to him. Not simply he explained to him, they. So that would imply that she as well explained to Apollos the, the way of God more accurately. She is probably a very gifted uh, uh, woman with regard to uh, 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 teaching and knowledge of the Word of God. But she did so in the presence of her husband and with her husband. Uh, she didn't go to Apollos uh, uh, individually and uh, and seek to correct him, and so that was uh, that was the point that uh, uh, that uh, was made from that particular text last time. Any any other questions? If a woman needs to or a wife needs to go over her husband's head because of his sin, uh, how many opportunities does she give him to uh, correct his behavior uh, before? doing so, is it unrelated to the seriousness? question is, if a woman needs to uh, go over her husband's head uh, to to uh, take a sin that he's committed and refused to repent of, she needs to take that sin to an elder, uh, how many times should she uh, confront him with that sin? Um, I don't know that there's a specific you know, number that you can you can go on. I think that you're right that the seriousness of the, uh, seriousness of the sin. Certainly, if if their life is at stake or something like that, you're not going to continue to beat around the bush on that kind of an issue. You're going to say, you know, I'm gone, you know, and, and get help. 
And so I think that that would uh, require much speedier uh, response or if the children are being abused or, you know, certain kinds of sins would warrant a much quicker response uh, to it. Uh, other kinds of sins, uh, I think, uh, and it's the same way within the church when elders are dealing with with uh, with uh, members of a congregation. Certain sins would warrant a much speedier response uh, to uh, a sin committed than others. And we would be willing to to work with uh, someone perhaps uh, uh, longer uh, with a particular kind of sin. So um, I think that that's, that is difficult, but the but you don't want to uh, certainly whether in the church or whether in the family you don't want a particular sin to to go on and on and on uh, to the point that it has some kind of very negative. Uh, corrupting influence within the family when you really begin to see your children affected by it and and uh, um, see the uh, um, uh, the family uh, tremendously affected by something like that then I think you you, you know you've got something that needs to be dealt with uh, rapidly Speak up just so we can get this on there. Mark, on Matthew 18, which is the question at hand, when we take something to the next step, it's always marked out by a failure to listen, a listener, be willing to communicate on the other person's part. So that's essentially the judgment has to be made. The wife, so the wife goes to the husband and says, I need to talk to you about this. I believe it's a sin. If the husband is willing to communicate and says, well, I don't agree with you that it's a sin, but let's keep talking, and we'll keep going over this, then she shouldn't take the next step. She says, look, that's the last time I'm talking to you about it. Don't ever bring it up against me. If you bring it up against me, we're going to have a bigger problem. That's the time. You cut the communication off, then you move on. Hmm. So that's the marker that Matthew 18, uh, 15 years ago. Hmm. Good point. Mark, you had another question? Yes, um, <coughs> I know we're going to deal with the head covering uh, on the subsequent thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we take that covering, uh, the passage that deals with that covering very specifically. And I'm just wondering why in, um, in First Timothy here when it talks about women not uh, wearing uh, or adorning this, uh, or wearing gold or pearls, costly clothing or braiding their hair. Um, why do we take that as a principle? In other words, uh, the question is, um, why do we apply head coverings very specific to worship, but then apply the what is said concerning the, the apparel of women more broadly and generally? Is that okay? Um, well, in the context here, certainly the the context is one of worship, um, and. Uh, uh, that that in First Timothy chapter two, that's really where you know when the church comes together, that women are to dress in this particular way. Now it's true we would not we would not simply apply it in a narrow sense that we would see that as applying uh, as having application in a more broad sense. Um, with regard to head coverings, um, the uh, uh, the issue. As far as that I can tell, um, if I if I saw that the principle was applied more broadly um, uh, with regard to head coverings, I would uh, be uh, you know one of the first ones to try to implement that. But it seems to me that uh, contrary to the culture, 
uh, Paul goes uh, very uh, contrary to the culture. See, many women uh, in the Greek culture, which Corinth was a, a case, the church in Corinth, uh, many uh, women, it was not uh, regulated uh, that uh, women in that culture wear head coverings. And um, it seems to me strange that if, if uh, Paul were mandating that women should wear head coverings uh, in other areas, it seems strange to me that he only specifies that they are to do so when they pray and prophesy. Why he does not uh, as well make the application there since women did not wear head coverings uh, in the Greek culture, uh, why he does not correct that particular abuse uh, as well. So it, it's somewhat an argument from silence, I suppose, at that particular point. But I, but I would, uh, uh, I would uh, uh, expect that that would be the case since, since it was uh, pretty well practiced uh, amongst the uh, women uh, not to wear head coverings. Yeah, there are certain certain movements that uh, you know any kind of uh, jewelry uh, would be uh, condemned. Any kind of uh, uh, of uh, cosmetics uh, would be uh, considered sinful. Um, um, they would take quite literally, uh, you know, the braiding of the hair and those kinds of things. Um, I think that, uh, you know, my my judgment would be that uh, uh, that the apostle is drawing attention to the. Um, I'm trying to find the passage again. That he's talking about uh, uh, modest apparel, and I think that again that. Um, that immodest apparel uh, could include certainly uh, a jewelry. Immodest apparel could uh, include uh, makeup, the way that one wears makeup. Um, it talks about costly clothing. Um, uh, it talks about uh, in the braiding of hair. Um, you know the the kinds of things that uh, uh, women have done through history with regard to hairstyles. And that type of thing have been anything but modest. Uh, there certainly have been many, many immodest kinds of things. But uh, um, I think that uh, uh, that that the uh, the passage is simp- is really uh, uh, talking about moderation. You know, that's the word that comes up there. You know, that you are to exercise moderation in these in these particular areas. For a woman to be neutral in regards to authority, in any sense, now what I'm getting at here is, let's take a, 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 any woman in society, of, let's say, who is not under the subjection of two elders, would she be under a positive use of authority? Okay, the question is um, whether a woman who is not under authority in society at large, okay, she doesn't have a husband, doesn't have a father. Um, but I'm just talking about, let's just, she's, let's just pick a woman who's not under the authority of any true godly elder in society. Mm-hmm. Would we consider that a positive, a positive sin of usurping authority over a Is she, is she not under uh, authority because she's chosen not to be? Okay. 
Yeah. Why well, would have to I mean, because she had a father. Yeah. yeah. You know, she's so she's not under her father's authority. Uh, then there's a problem there. She has a husband, and she's not under his authority. There's a problem there. There's civil magistrates. Uh, and if she refuses to be under their their authority, then there's a problem there. So yeah, I think you could conclude that she was uh, rebellious. And the point that I'm getting is, any woman in society who is not under the authority of true and godly elders violates the Fifth Commandment on this point. She, she positively usurps authority because she sets herself up as an authority outside of godly elders. Yes. So in, in effect, right. No, I, I I think that that would be the case. She, she would not have to stand on a soapbox and and speak wickedly of men and that kind of thing. All she would have to do is refuse to to submit to their authority, and that would be uh, a very rebellious uh, position to take. In a sense, Absolutely. Men, men can do the same thing by refusing to submit to those, because uh, it's not only women who are under authority, uh, all men are under authority as well. Um, and uh, uh, even the President uh, or of the United States or the Prime Minister of Canada is under authority. Um, and uh, so, you know, um, every, every human being is under authority, and if they refuse to be submissive to that authority, yeah, they're living in rebellion. And this, is a, this to me is the strongest argument possible for somebody. But this is why you can't be useful in regards to the issue mm-hmm. of a person membership because it's a positive sin to be outside of it. And so, you know, as you talk to the various people you deal with throughout society who have mm-hmm. not put themselves in subjection to elders, this is positive usurping of authority. And it's because yeah. it's a serious sin to make these things. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. Reg, you have it. I'm just going to mention that you thought for a person who claims to be a Christian not be a member of right. a true church. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It is a sin for for anyone who claims to be a Christian not to be a member of a true church. Absolutely. Any other questions? <laughs> well, let's uh, uh, let's take five more minutes in, of questions. How how much? Okay, let's take thirteen more minutes. <laughs> so that would be approximately uh, uh, ten 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 till a uh, little about uh, eight till. Okay. Everybody's under authority. Yeah, that's right. I hear that voice. I hear that, Ed. This this verse you just kind of faced in First Timothy two. Okay. It says, "I will therefore that men everywhere lifting up holy hands without you know praying everywhere without wrath and belly." And then it says, "Like in like manner." Mm-hmm. And it seems to compare the man praying uh, without wrath and uh, looking at holy hands right. to be uh, an act that's similar to. Right. But it doesn't seem, you know, like, I don't know, it's sort of funny because uh, it's not authority men to, but to pray, mm-hmm. uh, to have faith and not to be angry, mm-hmm. probably with each other, airborne God. And then it seems to uh, have a different sort of 
rolled the women there, but uh, when it talks about the head covering, it says for a woman that prays with her head uncovered. So I just wonder why it's covered that way. I don't know. Okay, well, uh, let me take a stab at it. Um, the question is, uh, in 1 Timothy 2, 8 and 9, begins by stating that uh, men are to pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, and then in verse 9, it uses the phrase, in like manner also, and then speaks of the women's, uh, begins by speaking of the women's apparel. Uh, and uh, in, in what manner uh, is, is the action of the, the woman similar to that of the man? Uh, and I, I would say that uh, that it refers to the role of it's focusing on the, the like manner is the role that men uh, and women have in in the, uh, when they come together uh, to worship uh, in like manner uh, as men have this particular role women have a particular role and this is their role within within the uh, within the church and it talks about the things they're to wear. Uh, how they're to learn uh, uh, and to and they're not to teach and to exercise authority and they're to bear children. So that would be the role of uh, of women. That that would be my understanding, Brian. Any other questions? <clears throat> I'll tell you something to think about the point It talks about Adam being firstborn, then he. But then the funny part to me is when it says Adam was not saved, but the woman was the Mm-hmm. And so it kind of seemed odd to me that the woman sin, not knowing what she was doing, and she didn't subject to Adam. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I I think that uh, that uh, the the point that, uh, that that's a good point. I think that what's being uh, uh, emphasized there, Adam was not deceived, um, and how that pertains again to instruction. You know, being places of leadership and things like this. I um, when you when you make when, anytime you make generalizations, there's going to be exceptions to the rule, so understand that. But I think that this this is one of those cases of uh, of a generalization that that uh, um, as Adam was not deceived, but uh, but sinned uh, very uh, willingly and intentionally, knew full uh, well what was going on. Um, uh, it I think emphasizes at that particular point that uh, that uh, women. Women are more likely uh, not to be uh, uh, theological students uh, in general, and can be therefore more easily deceived. And uh, with regard to uh, subjects, now again, that's that's a generalization, but I don't think that that's uh, certainly true in every single family or in every single case. Fifteen, fifteen thirty-five. Fifteen thirty-five, and if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. Oh, fourteen thirty-five. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, after they fulfilled that obligation, mm-hmm. after they've asked their husbands at home, 
and they've become knowledgeable of their husband's views and uh, have come to agreement with their husband's views. What is their responsibility now on that particular subject in the sense? Do you believe it's a sin for them to enter into discussion on that particular subject apart from being present with their husband even though they're in full knowledge? Like what I'm trying to determine is, is there any functional difference, any real difference, whether the husband standing beside her or not is fully aware of his views and fully in agreement with them? Like does the actual physical presence of her husband Mm-hmm. What is what is that accomplishing? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would, uh, uh, I think that you some of the principles are, you know, as in in most cases, very clear, uh, and others become sometimes less clear as to as to how to apply. You know, you you find something taught in the scripture and how to apply that to all these situations becomes less clear. And I think for me, uh, that would certainly be one of those kinds of situations in which um, uh, it would be uh, less clear as to whether, the, the, and I haven't repeated the question, in First uh, Corinthians 14.35, um, if the woman does uh, go home and, and discuss the subject with her husband and comes uh, to adopt her husband's Understanding and views of a particular theological uh, uh, issue. Um, Any time that she discusses that issue thereafter, uh, say with another man, particularly, does her husband need to be uh, present as she discusses that? Since they've already talked about it, and uh, she is not going to uh, uh, most likely be uh, violating, you know, that particular uh, that particular issue. Um, question two 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 possible possible things that come to my mind, and uh, I'm asking I suppose in the form of questions because again I'm not really sure. Is the issue of her needing to talk about these issues with her husband simply so as not to um, uh, disagree with his particular position? Or is the issue one beyond that of talking about theological issues with other men in general and when her husband is not present? And that, that becomes, you know, depending on how you answer those two questions will probably take you to, down two different paths with regard to an answer to that. And I'm not sure. Putting it the second way that I see that she's begging, begging the question. It's almost like saying, um, is it okay for the husband? The question is, mm-hmm. what is the purpose of the husband standing there? And the restatement of the question is essentially the same thing, but simply affirming that this is the purpose of the husband standing there. You know, we have to define what is it that the husband is doing in particular by standing there. Well, it's similar. I would say again. Um, now, they were going for the purpose of of discussing theology with Apollos, uh, and again, I, I don't have too many examples to draw from. I keep going back to this one, um, and I would be very happy if someone found another illustration for us to use one way or the other. But that's the example I continue to go back to, and I think that there uh, that that since that is the only one 
that I that I've seen that would really illustrate this point. Um, that I would say that at this point that I think there's more to it than simply adopting, therefore, the husband's position and then kind of being being on her own to be able to talk. That there is something to the to the point of her husband being present with her when she does discuss these issues with uh, with uh, with other men. Yeah, what, what I've been able to come up with so far is there's certainly an appearance of the matter mm-hmm. if the husband is physically present. The appearance of the matter has changed, so that's one one distinction. So how it would appear to others mm-hmm. to happen to see that situation would become a factor. And possibly if the conversation, a lot of times you get into a theological conversation, you begin with a question that you discuss with your husband, but it steers off into at least some side areas. If your husband is present, there is some ability to make judgment of where to draw the line and where to stop. So that may be another part of the answer. Rarely does the question stay focused on one particular issue that you think and she may be asked a question by by the man she's talking to that again that she right. may not uh, really need to get into or you know other kinds of things. So there's there are more things that could happen as you as you said uh, than simply sticking to that one issue possible. Yes, Marie. Possibly the possibly reason her husband being married to prevent. Let's say she's just been recently um, convinced of a position that she can't answer all objections and she's not looking at it uh, and if her husband's not present then she could be uh, swayed by the opposing position of this other man or the husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a good point too, Mary. If we have a family, for instance, that's from Catholic and the husband and the wife, neither of them are Christian. <coughs> if woman reads Westminster Convention of Faith becomes Christian and wants to be a Christian, what position would that for her? Well, right. Okay, the question. Yeah, good question. Um, the question is, uh, if a uh, Roman Catholic uh, uh, couple uh, are present and uh, the um, the wife becomes a uh, a Christian, uh, her husband remains a Roman Catholic. Uh, what is her responsibility uh, with regard to her husband's authority at that point? Uh, and she uh, she wants to basically unite with a with a true church. Um, and uh, how should how should she uh, approach that? Um, well, I think that I think that her responsibility is again to go to her husband to seek to you know not to do anything secretly to do everything above board um, and uh, to uh, uh, to talk with her husband about uh, these particular issues um, and the importance of that. And uh, again, um, if I think the principle of uh, Matthew 18, if he's unwilling to, to listen uh, to her when she, she goes, continues to go, she, she is required by God uh, to uh, uh, worship uh, God uh, with God's people, to be united, as we said, with a true church. Uh, those are not options, and so um, she cannot indefinitely, you know, uh, uh, leave that alone. She's going to have to take some kind of action. If he's not willing to to reconsider, if she's if he's not willing to go to church with her, you know, to a to a true church, things like that, she will have to, I think, uh, eventually uh, 
uh, obey God rather than men in that in that situation and, and go uh, find a, a true church to attend. There's another scriptural instance mm-hmm. worthy of consideration. The woman of Samaria had the well entered into a theological discussion with Christ mm-hmm. and uh, her husband was definitely not there. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you do that? Yeah, Jesus says to her that the man you're now living with is not your husband. Um, that she has apparently no, uh, in that particular situation, I would say, at least from the facts of the case, there is no, there is no husband. There is no head uh, uh, to which she she is submitting. Um, pardon me. Yeah, she was living in sin. Yeah, she she was not married. Uh, is, is basically the point. She was living in sin with a, with a man. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B Canada T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7:31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind. As though he had said that men assume too much wisdom 
when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.